Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Theo Podcast, The Pandemic Press. I am your host, Rashti Hevawasam, and today's guest will be Jim Ambuski. He's a PhD holder that leads the Center of uh, for Digital History at the Washington Library. He's a historian of American Revolution, Scotland, and the British Atlantic world. So Abuski graduated from the University of Virginia in 2016. He's a former former postdoctoral fellow in digital humanities at the University of Virginia Law Library. And he's full of great things. Um let us dive into the conversation we had regarding the history of pandemics and what can we learn from them itself. Uh, my name is Jim Ambusky. I'm the digital historian at the Washington Library at George Washington's Mount Vernon, and I am a historian of the American Revolution. Great. And uh, today you're going to speak about um, the pandemics in chronological order. We, we feel like we're living in a in an uncommon moment, for, but for most of human history, pandemics and epidemics have plagued societies, uh, irrespective of where you are in every continent. And oftentimes there are connections between those pandemics. Uh, you know, I've, so I'm an early Americanist. And if we think back to early American history and think about the 18th century, really the two major causes of concern or academic epidemics or pandemics as we could describe them uh, have to do with smallpox and yellow fever. Um, yellow fever uh, was particularly bad, and I'll and I'll touch on that in just a second. But for a good portion of the 18th century in North America, smallpox is an absolute scourge. Uh, it is a very destructive disease, uh, you know, uh, causing these uh, pock-like marks on the skin that would explode and then you know transmit the disease to other people that way. But there were several major instances of smallpox in North America in the 18th century that are important to think about. You know, there's a one in uh, uh, particularly bad in. Um, start that again. The one that we really think about mostly, particularly for the era of the American Revolution, is the pandemic uh, that struck between 1775 and 1782, which actually happened to coincide with the era of the American Revolution, the War for American Independence. And the smallpox epidemic that broke out then wasn't just isolated to the eastern seaboard of what became the United States. It actually was continental in scope and infected people in eastern North America, in Mexico, Native American peoples living in the interior and also in Canada. Now, one of the things that we like to point out about this particular epidemic in the era of the American Revolution is the extent to which inoculation became a, an important practice in what becomes the United States, so in the British American colonies at the time, and particularly as a consequence of the war. Um, George Washington, who was commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, had actually had smallpox as a young man. In 1751, he had traveled to Barbados with his older half-brother Lawrence. And Lawrence at the time was suffering from illness, uh, consumption, and what we would call tuberculosis. And it was believed at the time that if he went to a more tropical climate, that the, the trade winds that blew over the island would help cure your disease. And so George went with his older half-brother. And subsequently, over the course of late 1751 into 1752, he had contracted smallpox. Uh, and Washington uh, managed to survive. Uh, you know, it was a very deadly disease, uh, very 
questionable whether people would survive. Um, and sometimes it didn't make sense to people at the time why they survived and why others didn't. But nevertheless, Washington survived. Uh, he had he carried the scars from the pox on his face for the rest of his life. But when he's commander in chief of the Continental Army in the 1775, he takes command of the army outside of Boston. Uh, there is a, a minor smallpox outbreak. And one of the things that Washington has to think about is it's unclear how long the war is going to last. Uh, but, it, uh, but a war only lasts as long in your favor if your army is healthy uh, and is fit for duty. And so he begins to think about potential inoculation. And the way that you inoculated someone in the 18th century is you took the pus that had been secreted from uh, a pock on another person and inserted it into a very small incision into another person's arm. They called it scratching the arm and they would put a little bit of that, of the, the mucus or the pus in there, thus triggering an infection. And if you're lucky, it's a mild infection, but if you survive and chances are you would, you'd be immune for life. So Washington has to make a decision. Uh, you know, he's trying to take command of this army. The army itself is a kind of conglomeration of different uh, white American colonists with some African-American colonists uh, in the army. It's undisciplined. Uh, he, it is not the kind of army he would uh, hope it would be, but he sees potential. Uh, and particularly if the Americans are going to wage war against Great Britain during the American Revolution, well, they're going to need a professional fighting force. And so Washington uh, begins to implement some measures to improve the cleanliness of, of camp, to ward off disease, uh, you know, ordering that camp be you know, made in good order, that you know, there's not refuse left around, things like that. Because we have to, we have to remember at the time that um, uh, people in the 18th century didn't necessarily understand germ theory. theory. You know, they didn't really understand what caused disease, but they, but they uh, wanted to take steps that they thought would help. So cleanliness was one thing. And Washington kind of resisted inoculation initially, and he wasn't sure if he should risk the army, uh, whether or not he actually had the authority to do so, um, because that's a, a pretty big imposition when you are ordering an army to uh, receive inoculation. But he ultimately decides that in the interest of the American army, in the interest of waging a war for independence, then yes, uh, he's going to order his troops to be inoculated. And so you see there at a very early moment in the United States, what eventually becomes the United States, um, a, a government imposition uh, for an inoculation campaign uh, to prevent against disease. Now, as I said, this smallpox outbreak in 75 through 82 is continental in scope. Uh, we know that uh, it, it that it, it travels with the army in certain places. We know that uh, transatlantic shipping and other forms of travel are transmitting smallpox to different parts of North America. So we have evidence of it in Canada. We know that it infects people in uh, what is now Louisiana, or so at the time Spanish Louisiana. We know that uh, smallpox traveled up the old Camino Real, uh, which is the kind of central road that that uh, led from uh, Mexico up into uh, the interior of North America. So what at the time was still controlled by Spanish. We have evidence of Native American peoples being infected by it. And we know that it reached the Pacific Northwest. Um, years later, when uh, there were expeditions out that way, uh, they reported back evidence that smallpox had indeed infected Native populations and had found evidence uh, to support uh, support those assertions. So it's uh, it, it was... Uh, a formative moment in American history in many ways, because it's happening around the time of the American Revolution. That's one thing. But from this uh, episode, we see the extent and the reach of a kind of powerful disease like smallpox. And if, if your listeners are interested, uh, one of my senior colleagues, Elizabeth Finn, Dr. Elizabeth Finn, has written a, an excellent book about this particular epidemic called, small, uh, called Pox Americana. Uh, which really uh, tells the story in very moving ways. Um, so it, it, it's interesting to think about, right? If, yes. if Washington had not made those choices in the American context and the army had been, been infected, uh, 
it's diff- you know there's a real possibility that uh, there would be no United States, at least as we understand it. Yeah. And uh, do you, uh, at the time, uh, what were the cures? If you know, what what was the question? I'm sorry. Um, anything? How how any other method to like uh, cure uh, smallpox at the time? At the time, no. I mean, that was the only thing known. I mean, there were no vaccines at this point, so inoculation was was the way to go. Um, you know, the best you could do, and if someone got infected was to quarantine them. You know, there were quarantine methods put into place. Uh, And actually when Washington got to Boston to take command of the army, um, it was, it was understood at this point that, that if you had smallpox and survived, you were immune. They at least knew that. And so, you know, they would put in, uh, in place policies like only people who were immune could staff, you know, certain, you know, uh, certain areas of the hospitals or things like that. um, So that, uh, these individuals would not, and then in turn transmit the disease elsewhere. And so, you know, quarantine policies, things like that, cleanliness, keeping the camp in good order. But ultimately, the inoculation campaign uh, was the way to go. Um, and there's a very, it, it was a very dicey proposition. Um, it was a very series of moving letters where between John and Abigail Adams. Um, so John Adams uh, goes on to become the second president of the United States, but. In the revolutionary period, he's one of the leading statesmen, uh, and his wife is a brilliant woman. And but she's back uh, in Massachusetts, uh, taking care of the family and running the farm while John is away uh, in Philadelphia at the Continental Congress. And she makes a decision to inoculate herself and the kids. Um, and you know, there's no guarantee you're going to survive, but the threat of the disease was so great and the fear of the disease was so great that they had a what seemed to be a proven method of giving you a fighting chance to survive. And if you survive, you've got immunity for life. And so a lot of people made that choice. Um, and it's um, uh, in many ways, a bold one. Yeah. And um, how would you uh, say um, the effectiveness of their um, recovery method? Uh, in terms of uh, uh, survival rates or yes, survival I'm, rates. I'm not quite clear on that. I, the number I think I've seen that if, if you had smallpox properly, I think the serve, I mean, the death rate was somewhere around 30%. And so pretty high. Uh, but by inoculating yourself with a weakened strain, uh, of the disease, then gives you a promotes that immune response that it can actually you know form the antibodies necessary to combat a potential full-on infection. Then again, you know smallpox like chickenpox. When I was a kid, you know if you get chickenpox, you're immune for life. And it's it's funny to think actually these days no one gets at least in the United States uh, chickenpox anymore because we have vaccines for that now. So that's yeah, a, a sign of progress even in our own time. Yeah, and uh, it's always like we don't know what exact what are the germs that uh, will actually come and invade a body as well. You don't know the adversity of the germ because like you can't see it. It's something mm-hmm. you cannot see. Yeah, and that's probably one of the more terrifying things is because you know people got sick. They understood that something was making them sick, and they had all these theories. And we can talk about yellow fever here in a second about what was doing it. I mean, of course, with smallpox, you had a visual representation of, of, of what was probably at least giving you the potential for being sick. And they knew, you know, based on inoculation that there was something in that pus that contained something that they didn't quite understand, but they knew that it, we knew it would transmit smallpox. And they knew that if they put that weakened strain inside, uh, the body of someone else, it might promote that immune response, but not knowing precisely what it is. Uh, and we've seen that in our own time. You know, if you think back to February and March of 2020, when, and I can remember, you know, first hearing reports of uh, a virus that was sweeping through China. And even though we understand virology better these days, we understand what causes virus, you know, the, the speed with which this stuff can spread can be very alarming. Um, and 
very disconcerting to be sure. Yeah. And uh, how would you compare it with uh, the rest of the pandemics? So there's another excellent case in 1793 in Philadelphia. And so now we're past the American Revolution. We've got uh, in the United States, uh, we've got uh, several states coming into the Union. But yellow fever was another one. And this is in particular where people really didn't understand how it came about. Uh, In 1793, there was a yellow fever outbreak in Philadelphia, which is at the time the largest city in the United States, about 50,000 people. Uh, And there had been, I believe, an outbreak about 30 years before uh, in Philadelphia. And actually a physician named Benjamin Rush, uh, who was a medical student at the time in 1762 in that first outbreak, uh, had participated in some of the relief efforts. Now in 1793, Benjamin Rush is one of the city's top doctors, probably the most famous medical doctor in America at this point. Uh, But they don't know where it comes from. They don't, they don't understand, we don't understand until much later that it's a very, very particular type of mosquito that's carrying yellow fever. And that um, um, when, you know, mosquitoes breed in uh, water, you know, stagnant water, they lay their eggs there, they, then they hatch, and then they go and bite individuals uh, so that they can uh, lay more eggs. The females uh, go and bite people and drink blood so that they can, uh, 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 lay additional eggs. People don't understand that. Understand that at the time. It's only later that they learn that uh, it's due to mosquitoes that's transmitting yellow fever. But anyway, there's a lot of uh, there's an initial outbreak uh, that summer in, or in the spring of 1793, moving into the summer, and it worsens. Uh, yellow fever is a particularly nasty way to die. I mean, there's really no, we still don't, as I understand it, have a cure for yellow fever. And like, if you, if you get it, ball game's over. Um, but anyway, it's a very interesting case in the early history of the United States because it raises questions about public health. It raises questions about what is the federal government or the state's authority to assist with a pandemic and what is a, a government's responsibility in general? Uh, and so it breaks down and people have some ideas. You know, they, they think that, uh, you know, at the time in 1793, there is a revolt of enslaved people in what is now Haiti. And so there are refugees uh, who are fleeing that, that revolution in 1793. And some come to Philadelphia. They're crowding into the port of Philadelphia, which is a very, you know, packed port. Um, and, it's possible that yellow fever came with them and particularly the mosquitoes, the important vector uh, came with them. That's not entirely clear. Some people think that actually a British ship uh, who would have been sailing at different ports in the Atlantic brought it not entirely clear. The the one theory that some people have is that um, a shipment of coffee had gone bad in the port of Philadelphia and that the, noxious fumes of this rotting coffee had somehow produced the disease. And so they're, they're scrambling for uh, explanations. Nevertheless, it breaks out. Um, it's, it gets very, very bad. Uh, the leading physicians at the time, including uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush and others, are sometimes at odds with each, with each other about how to treat yellow fever. Um, one of the ideas is that you bleed someone. And so in the 18th century, it's thought, you know, if you make an incision and force blood out of someone's veins, you could literally drain the body of the disease that's plaguing them because it's, it's in their blood. Uh, now you can imagine that that has all kinds of uh, negative health effects by, by weakening the body and weakening the person because you're, you're, <laughs> you're draining them of their life fluid. Uh, and so individuals like Dr. Benjamin Rush are trying that. Um, you know, the, they are trying to combat and treat the symptoms as they see them. Um, you know, some of the symptoms for yellow fever are headaches, fever, vomiting. Um, the skin starts to turn yellow. Um, and that's, you know, that's a good sign that um, things are not going your way. Uh, and people are, uh, uh, in a sense, dropping like flies uh, due to this pandemic. 
now, so what is what is the government's response? Well, Philadelphia at the time is the temporary capital of the United States. Uh, and in this particular moment, it wasn't clear, it wasn't thought that the federal government had any major responsibility for public health. Um, and so, you know, it could probably order, you know, ports closed, things like that. But essentially what happens is that uh, when the fever really starts to get going, the federal government is already kind of scheduled uh, for summer recess anyway. And so George Washington, who was president at the time, comes back here to Mount Vernon. The state government uh, doesn't really do anything. They're not, it's not quite clear in their mind that they have any public responsibility for this. And so it, it, it falls to the city uh, to actually implement quarantine measures, try to clean the city. Uh, they had some inkling that, that water might be associated with it, but the particular mosquito that causes yellow fever can breed in dirty and clean water, so it didn't matter. Um, and especially in this pandemic, you saw a kind of remarkable um, instance in which people are trying to work out a citizen's role in society. And so a white uh, physicians like Benjamin Rush uh, and others are sort of leading the charge in terms of um, trying to diagnose people, treat people. But the African-American community, uh, particularly uh, some gentlemen named Absalon Jones and Richard Allen, are at the forefront of leading relief efforts. Uh, there was a misguided thought by some physicians at the time that African-Americans had some kind of natural immunity to yellow fever. Of course, that's not true. Uh, and it's kind of a racist connotation. Um, but uh, people like uh, Reverend Allen, Absalom Jones, uh, they, they take it upon themselves uh, to be a major part of the relief efforts uh, to take care of people, uh, you know, to help organize uh, different campaigns to alleviate the crisis. And uh, it's a really interesting moment in which there, especially in a society in the United States in which uh, there's you know rampant discrimination and you know especially uh, enslavement in almost all parts of the Union at the moment, in which African Americans are very vigorously making a claim to citizenship by participating in these relief campaigns and demonstrating that you know that they that they belong as full uh, members of the body politic. Um, in the end. Uh, when the pandemic is over and the pandemic just goes away because it gets cold and the mosquitoes die, it kills about 5,000 people. So it's about 10% of the population of Philadelphia. It's, it's not an inconsequential number. And the yellow fever doesn't go away in general. There are other uh, outbreaks uh, throughout the 1790s into the 19th century. But as a consequence of this major outbreak in 1793, you know, you start to see some changes put into place. Um, uh, ports are put into quarantine, trade is stopped between ports to prevent the spread, things like that. Uh, hospitals are built where uh, infected people are put and kind of uh, removed and quarantined from the rest of the, of the public. And so you start to see some uh, development of public health and also uh, uh, lessons learned from these kinds of outbreaks. Yes, and uh, how did they, um, do you know any uh, recovery method that they use for yellow fever? Say that again one more time, I'm sorry, you cut uh, out there. The cure, the cure for yellow fever at the time. Well, they didn't, they didn't really have one. Um, again, because they didn't, they didn't understand that it was mosquitoes. And so you, you had to wait it out. I mean, you had to waited out. You had to take precautions like um, quarantine, um, you know, social distancing, I guess we would say now in certain cases, um, but they didn't have anything. They just, uh, it was only later that they learned, this is the late 19th century, uh, early 20th century, that it becomes clear that it's a mosquito. And so once you have that knowledge, you can begin to you know, treat areas where mosquitoes might breed things like that to prevent it. Um, you know, if you think, speaking of, you know, mosquitoes, we saw a similar kind of problem here a few years ago in Florida uh, with the outbreak of the Zika virus. And that was, that's linked to a mosquito. And so. Yeah. And for us, it was like dengue. Right, right, right. Exactly. Sri Lanka. Yeah. Yeah. 
Exactly. And the thing is that I found out that like uh, for introverted people actually didn't, um, wasn't affected by the uh, disease at all. It's uh, the people who are like adventurous and the people who are going out and then socializing are the ones who actually were affected at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a great point. Uh, you know, diseases, bacteria, viruses feed on populations or concentrations of populations you know so back to the revolutionary war example i mean that's you've got an army encamped in boston and that is ripe for smallpox to just rip through that place and same with philadelphia philadelphia in 1793 is the largest city as i had, had said earlier the port is is packed all the time because it's a major american port and so you've got a concentration of people down there of all classes um, from enslaved people on up to very rich people who are in that space. And uh, diseases like that don't discriminate. Um, they will, uh, if you are in that, that area, um, it can get to you. Yeah. One of the other public health emergencies in the same vein as a pandemic or an epidemic was the AIDS epidemic uh, beginning in the 1980s in the United States. Uh, just like the beginning of COVID, in the 1980s, there was a great deal of uncertainty and fear over what this new virus called HIV was. Uh, it was unclear exactly how it was transmitted, although it be became clear fairly in short order that it was a sexually transmitted disease. It could also be transmitted via blood. So if you were using a hypodermic needle for whatever purposes, but for illicit drug use or for even legitimate medical purposes, the chance uh, that you could be infected uh, via an unclean syringe was something that inspired a lot of fear in people. Um, and it also led to stigmatization of uh, gay and lesbian people because at first it was seen as a quote unquote, the gay disease that gays and lesbians contracted uh, through sexual activity. And so there was a lot of stigma around that. There was a lot of fear. There wasn't uh, when it first broke out, uh, as often is the case with these kinds of health emergencies, robust treatment. Uh, it wasn't even clear what was what was happening to people there for a long time. Uh, people's immune systems were destroyed. They would be infected with other kinds of bacterial or uh, viral diseases that would compromise their health and ultimately kill them. Uh, when initial treatments started rolling out to combat AIDS uh, and to try to manage HIV in a person's body, those drugs were extremely expensive. Um, I'm not quite sure if they're still as of expensive as they are uh, now as they were then. But I remember, you know, being a kid in the 1980s and early 1990s, that AIDS was initially thought of in that period as a death sentence. Uh, but fortunately, thanks to modern medicine, uh, that is no longer the case by and large, I believe. Uh, now we have new medical therapies, new uh, drugs that are able to help people manage their HIV, uh, help limit transmissibility between uh, partners, between you know, a mother who's infected with HIV and her unborn child. So we've made a lot of progress. And these days, uh, people are able to live with HIV and live full lives as opposed to facing an uncertain future and uh, moving on with the other pandemics the next i mean there there are several yes outbreaks of, of various things over the course of the 19th century but really you know of course in in this moment the one that everyone thinks about is the 1918 pandemic the the, uh, the flu um that ravaged the global population. I think I was reading earlier, I saw one statistic, something like an order of one third of the global population at that time was infected, which is staggering uh, to think about. And actually just yesterday, and so that would have been September the 20th, 2021, in the United States, we have uh, uh, crossed the threshold uh, where the number of deaths from the COVID-19 virus now equal the amount of deaths from the 1918 flu, which is about 670,000 uh, individuals. I, don't, I also saw like uh, a stat that they say like um, 
um, the adverse, the number of adverse reactions from the COVID-19 vaccine was around 701,561. And all other vaccines from 1990 uh, to present was uh, eight, uh, 820,671. That's pretty interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and there there was also like um, two other categories called U.S. for U.S. Uh, data. It was uh, COVID nineteen vaccines were uh, adverse effects were five thousand five hundred uh, no five thousand five uh, fifty nine four sixty two. So it's five five nine four six two. Yeah, I see. Well, and it's interesting to, to compare the two periods um, because if we kind of look at it, uh, uh, if we look at the 1918 pandemic and the number of deaths relative to the population of the United States at that time, so I think it's about, if I remember rightly, 0.6%, um, which is, it's not an inconsequential number, right? Um, it's not as many people that died as died during the American civil war, which is about, you think about 720,000, but if you took that same 0.6% and applied it to the current American population, it's something like on the order of nearly 2 million people, which, I mean, we've, we've already lost too many people. It's already horrific. But then if you think about over a million people, that's a, a sticker shock kind of number. And, you know, the major difference between 1918 and now is we, we know we have a vaccine. Uh, we have, you know, several iterations of a vaccine that can help control the virus. Uh, but there are some parallels between, uh, even more parallels between 1918 and today. You know, in 1918, the world was already in crisis from the Great War, from World War One, And so when the flu reared its head, it had uh, populations that it could attack in various places around the globe, you know, certainly concentrations of soldiers, those soldiers are moving around from various places, supply lines are, are taking uh, supply ships are taking supplies from various parts of the globe to other parts of the globe. And so the virus could circulate very quickly. And kind of like what we saw with COVID-19, uh, in the United States last year, you know, in, in 1918, the first wave, uh, 1918, yeah, the first wave of the, of the flu was not great. I mean, it was pretty bad, but there wasn't, uh, from my understanding, the kind of level, uh, the, the level of fatalities was kind of on order of normal flu season. But then in the, there was a second deadlier wave that fall you know, flu and flu always comes back with a vengeance in the fall, it seems like for reasons I don't quite understand because I'm not a, a, a virologist, but uh, it comes back in a very deadly way in the fall, uh, particularly in the United States, but also elsewhere in other parts of the globe. And that's when it really starts to make headway in killing people and infecting people. And so we, we see in 1918, all these wonderful archival evidence photographs of government campaigns to encourage social distancing, uh, mask wearing. Uh, you see people wearing masks uh, everywhere. Uh, you see uh, uh, instances of quarantining, uh, calls for social distancing. We know that, that theaters and schools were closed, kind of the same kinds of responses we took over the last 18 to 20 months with the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, so there was precedent for that. Uh, in, in that century before. And, you know, that, that flu from 1918 really left a global impact because it infected all corners of the globe. Uh, it infected, as I said, a third of the global population. Uh, and that's very scary. Um, you know, it, it's hard to tell right now what percentage of the globe has been infected by COVID-19 uh, in part because, you know, there was there are problems of getting reliable information from certain parts of the world. Um, yeah, exactly. Because like, I felt like uh, some people I knew actually um, in back in my home 
uh, they would die of something else that would be recorded as death from COVID-19. And mm -hmm. then this happened to one of my friends who was living abroad. And I kind of like connected the dots. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, and the same, there was some complications similar in 1918. I mean, because it was a wartime period, uh, intelligence sharing was restricted. Uh, news reports were restricted. And so uh, you didn't necessarily have the kind of public knowledge, at least initially uh, in the first outbreak and probably in the second wave that you might have in a normal peacetime period. But because... Yes. And nobody actually knew that uh, there was like uh, limited food at that time compared to now. What was that part? I'm sorry. Uh, limited food at that time because they were on during a war period. So. Oh sure, sure, yeah. So yeah, exactly. So you've you've are you're 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 probably on some rations in certain parts of the world. You know your your food systems are compromised. Um, it, that affects your health, that weakens your ability to fight off the flu. Um, you know, war and disease often go hand in hand, as we've seen far too often in our world history. And which is why we should prevent that from happening this time. Exactly. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Um, and it's... It, I've been thinking about this a lot recently because, you know, in the United States and other parts of the world, there's a resistance in some quarters to government mandates uh, for vaccines or, you know, masking, things like that. And it's, in part, it has to do with political ideology. That's certainly a part of it. There are certain segments of the population in, in the United States who deeply believe, and earnestly, I think, that those kinds of mandates are an infringement upon their individual liberty and their individual freedom. Um, but the other thing I think is going on is actually kind of a historical amnesia. Um, you know, since this thing broke out, we've been talking about things like the smallpox epidemic during the Revolutionary War, the, the yellow fever outbreak in 1793, the 1918 flu. But because uh, in the early 20th century, modern medicine developed vaccines for things that had just destroyed lives for centuries, things like polio, mumps, measles, things like that, that particularly in the United States, uh, there has been, there's a lack, I think, uh, people of my generation, and I think the previous generation haven't had to deal with a crisis like this, like COVID-19. And so there is a lack of understanding that the reason why we haven't really suffered a, a pandemic on this scale in the United States for a century is a consequence of public medicine, of public health campaigns, and of vaccine rollouts as a consequence of advancements in science. I mean, nobody in the United States gets polio anymore. Some people still do get measles in certain parts of the U.S. because there are people who are uh, anti-vax or some people can't get vaccinations for other reasons or religious reasons. But, um, but by and large, we've been able to defeat a lot of the things that were scourges of our society. Uh, and the COVID-19 outbreak is an unfortunate reminder that uh, we were, in a sense, victorious in those campaigns for so long that we forgot that for most of human history, we, we, we had to live with these things and, and large swaths of the population have suffered from them. Um, and, you know, you know, vaccination is a great way to protect you. It's, it's a great way to protect your uh, community. And so it, particularly in the U S it's always the tension between individual liberty and the community. Um, and there's always going to be that, pushback from folks who, you know, who fear that uh, you give the government too much power, they're going to intrude on other aspects of your life. But with the case of diseases, our history demonstrates that uh, we have been able to fend off or defeat a lot of them because we have come together and made sacrifices for the greater good, as opposed to letting uh, 
other things get in, you know, get in the way or get out of control that are detrimental to us as individuals and as us as a society. Yeah, and we can also move on to the next pandemic as well. Sure. Um, I mean, the one that comes after COVID-19? <laughs> no, no. The after the 1918 one. Well, um, you know, the one I guess I would be most familiar with is the, uh, uh, the H1N1 uh, outbreak. Uh, this is about 10, 15 years ago uh, at this point. And it's very interesting. Uh, and I, I can't tell you a whole lot about it from a kind of big picture standpoint, because I just remember um, being not a participant in it. That's the wrong word, but living in the time that that broke out. And, you know, I'd actually known people who had contracted it. And it was, it was kind of a similar thing to COVID. And, you know, it was a respiratory uh, virus. Uh, you know, people get short, shortness of breath. Um, and, you know, you worry about whether or not um, uh, for their survival and things like that. The, it, it's interesting. I, I was having a conversation with, with actually the person who was cutting my hair a few weeks ago. And she remembered that time too, and was kind of asking, you know, well, in that period, H1N1 was declared a pandemic and we didn't take as such extreme measures then as we are now with COVID. And so what's the difference? And I, I confess, I didn't have a good answer for that at the time, but the more I thought about it and, and more I've sort of thought about COVID-19 and, and listened to experts and, and whatnot, you know, the major difference this time seems to be, at least as I understand it, the fact that COVID-19 is highly contagious, that it can spread very rapidly. But the big problem we're having, you know, because people always say like, well, it's, isn't it just like the flu? The flu doesn't overwhelm your healthcare system. The flu doesn't cause us to run out of beds in the intensive care units rapidly and force hospitals to make really tough decisions about who to treat and who not to treat. This is, this is what's happening in you know, the period we're in now. It didn't really happen to that extent in H1N1, but COVID-19 is so virulent that uh, our hospitals are running out of uh, beds to put people. You know, the hospital healthcare system is overwhelmed. The staff are exhausted. Uh, and so that's the danger. Uh, Imagine all of our ICU beds are full across the United States and there is either a natural catastrophe like a hurricane that just struck the Gulf Coast recently or God forbid a war. Um, somebody does something really awful and detonates a weapon and then there are mass casualties. Um, how are we gonna respond to that if we are already, our, our healthcare system is already stressed out? And you know, right now it's difficult to say whether or not we could. Um, I think always hope for the best because even though the world is divided, um, there, there are many sources nowadays, especially we have the internet that is booming. And with that, everybody is trying to educate everybody saying, this is, this, this is what happened a, few year, the, a couple of years ago in the past history. And we must we must take the lessons from what we learned from history and apply it to what's happening now. I, I think that's a fantastic way to look at it. I absolutely agree uh, because you can learn a lot from history. I mean, that's why I do what I do. Um, I'm you know I'm trying to understand the past so I can in, in a sense make uh, make some sense of the present. It doesn't always you know correlate, but it, it's when you have an event like this that seems unprecedented to a lot of people. In reality, it's not, and it's happened before. And we've been talking about some of those incidents over the course of, of our time together today. Uh, and so it's a good opportunity, as you say, to educate yourself, to do your research, um, you know, figure out, as I tell my students, uh, you know, learn how to read sources and learn how to determine which sources you can trust and which sources you can't. Um, you know, what's, if, uh, if, if the nation's top virologist is saying something, well, that's a, probably a good bet. You should listen to this person as opposed to some random person on Facebook who has a thought, you know what I, uh, what I mean? Um, yeah. It, yeah. Reliable sources. 
Yeah. Reliable sources, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, the thing is that um, I was I was just uh, telling my brother this um, the other day. Would you like? Would you actually listen to a singer who doesn't have a reason to argue against the vaccine, or would you actually trust a medical student who is actually trying to actually figure out what's happening? And then, yeah, so there's a difference there. I was like, I was like, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a great point. Um, I mean, as a historian, I, I'm interested in the ideological argument that someone who opposes a vaccine is making. That does fascinate me, but I, I have to separate sort of the historian's interest in me uh, and uh, because people have different reasons uh, right. to make their um, when they make their choices. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. And it's like people have to learn auto uh, autonomy because oh, I was, I'm a writer as well. So mm -hmm. one of the things I wrote um, was like society, um, the people around us are like robots, you know, they do what you tell them to do. Um, they needed like a uh, visual to do list and this is what you have to believe. And it's kind of like, they are being programmed to do this and that. And it, when you are actually questioning everything that's being set in this world, it's kind of like a different, like a different way of life. It's like an autonomical way of life. You are not being controlled by what's being put at you because you think for yourself. Right, right, right. And, and that's where education comes in. You know, yeah. if you, if you learn, as we were as we were saying, you know, learn uh, to trust or to figure out what sources are reliable, to do research, uh, to identify experts who are properly credentialed and and have the expertise to comment on a topic, um, you, then you're in a much better position. Um, you know, uh, it's you know, right now, uh, uh, kind of a parallel back to 1918 when there was a lack of information because of uh, news sources and intelligence networks were were um, uh, not uh, were not being shared. I guess is the word because of the wartime. Now you know with with the internet and social media, while that can be a great way to disseminate information and inform public health, you know, it can also spread in misinformation and uh, unsubstantiated, unsupported theories about uh, pandemics and and COVID nineteen and and can lead you to make decisions that may not be in the best interest of yourself, but uh, in the best interest of your community as well. And so learning to listen with a discerning ear and reading with a discerning eye is really important. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you have to make decisions for your own self and your own public, uh, your own uh, uh, well-being. But uh, there's, I think as we've been talking about, we're kind of all in this together. And so let's let's be let's beat back this thing <laughs> yes um and uh do you have any more uh interesting uh things to share about the other pandemics in history because i learned a lot from you right now oh well thank you um i think the one thing i would i would point out is you know uh disease has long been a force in north american history global history, certainly, but uh, in my own training, I'm just thinking back to early America and, you know, that disease epidemics, pandemics have shaped every facet of life and they've reshaped populations, um, you know, in the early period of contact between Europeans and, Nor and native North Americans. Uh, the introduction of European diseases decimated native societies uh, and continued to do so for long after. And, uh, we can attribute in part the ability of you know, European descended peoples to settle the continent here uh, and establish um, you know, colonies and whatnot, in part because disease had, such, had wrought such a destructive effect on native populations. Um, and, you know, so it's interesting to think if native peoples had had immunity or had seasoning to European diseases, you know, what would North American history look like now? Um, and so it's, 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 it's a significant example of how disease has 
remade society or or sent history in a different trajectory than it might otherwise have gone. You know, same same with Washington's decision to inoculate the troops during the Revolutionary War. Um, same with uh, with the lack of information sharing in 1918. Uh, these uh, little things uh, can add up to big things, and and those can mean a lot at the end. Yeah, because now we have more resources to like um, get to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It wasn't uh, there before. Yeah. It yeah. It wasn't a solution before, and it's like now we have like a totally different uh, area in life because technology is like advancing as well. Technology is advancing. We have a better understanding of germ theory. We, you know, we can see these things in our microscopes. We know how they attack the body. And so science gives us a fighting chance. Yes. Do you have anything else to add? I do not. This has been fun though. Thanks for the opportunity to uh, talk with you today and, and uh, think through some of these issues with you. I'm glad uh, you, I'm actually glad and grateful that you joined this podcast. Well, I am too. I, I, I hope uh, you got something out of it. I hope your listeners do. Um, I'm happy to recommend uh, some books uh, if, if that would be helpful for your show yeah. notes. Um, I can send you those over the, the message thing. There's some great authors there who can, uh, who, who really dive deep into these topics and are much better uh, at them than I am. Thank you so much. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed the conversation I had with Jim Ambuski. Um, and don't forget to subscribe to Teo Podcast, The Pandemic Press. Recommend it to a friend. We're available on Apple, Spotify, uh, Google Podcast, um, basically any podcast website. We are like everywhere, even on Amazon Audibles as well. And um, I am your host, Rashni Heva Wasam, and now I'm a life coach that specializes with uh, mental health. Um, and I've all, I'm also an author that released a book. It's called Unveiling the Truth Behind Catherine's Destiny. It can be found on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles as well. So I want you guys to check it out, um, maybe read it and give your feedback on it. Um, I hope you like this because this book is actually targeted towards young adults. Thank you guys for listening and I am signing out.